Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Raphael Scopacasa joins the show again. On June 14th, 2021, Dr. Scopacasa joined the show and we had a conversation that acted as an overview on the ancient civilization of Samnium. Then on August 11th, 2021, Dr. Scopacasa returned to the show and we spoke about a very similar topic. We spoke about the Samnites, those people and what scholars know about them from the Iron Age. So in that context, that pertained to the 9th to 6th century, 6th centuries BCE. And so in today's episode, Dr. Scopacast is back on the show and we're going to have a conversation and explore what scholars know about the Samnites in the 5th century BCE. So today's episode is going to act very much like a sequel to the Iron Age episode that I just mentioned moments ago. Dr. Scopacasa is a lecturer of history at the Federal University of Minas Gerais, based in Brazil. He's also an honorary research fellow at the University of Exeter, based in the UK. He has written numerous publications over his career, including authoring the monograph, Ancient Samnium, Settlement, Culture and Identity Between History and Archaeology, which was published by Oxford University Press. And Dr. Scopacasa joins the show from Brazil. Welcome back on the show, Raphael. Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be back. uh, Yeah, it's great to connect with you again, as always, Raphael. Uh, So to start off the conversation, we're going to speak about the people known as the Samnites in the 5th century BCE today. I wanted to start, as you know, uh, on on the point of terminology and identity. Um, My understanding is that nothing survives in the records of these people calling themselves Samnites, there are um, writers from the ancient period that do do call them Samnites or some very close uh, version, uh, like a cognate uh, of. And so we want to be, of course, uh, mindful of 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 terminology when we're having a conversation, and we also want to be colloquial and 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 have a constructive conversation so that we know what we're speaking about and who we're speaking about, and people listening know what we're speaking about and who we're speaking about. So to get this out of the, so to get the identity and the terminology out of the way and to make it and to make this point informative for everybody, uh, can you can you start there, Raphael? Can you start with what the what the sources are as it pertains to the the, the term Samnites and the term Samnium? Well, yeah, as you say, uh, the word Samnite is a word that we find in ancient Greek and Roman sources, ancient Greek and Roman texts, the earliest of which date from um, the 4th century BC. Um, So you get Samnitae in the Greek texts and Samnites in the Latin texts, which are slightly later. Now, basically, this uh, this word Samnite or Samnites, as it appears in the ancient texts, is normally used um, as a way of referring to some of those communities that lived, um, that we know, that lived in the mountains of central Italy, um, that area that's known today as the Central Apennine Mountains, um, roughly in the context um, of the second half of the first millennium BC, right? Um, So these communities that we're talking about, they really did have some important things in common. Uh, For example, they all seem to have shared 
um, what we might call a, a non-urban lifestyle, right? But in the sense that they don't seem to have built large cities or urban centers, like, for example, the Etruscans or the Latins or many of the Greek communities did. So that's one distinctive thing about these, uh, these central Apennine communities that are our Greek and Roman sources refer to as Samnites. Um, another thing that they had in common, these central Apennine communities had in common, was the fact that they spoke the Oscan language or, or dialects of that language. And they also used the Oscan alphabet, as I think I might have mentioned in, uh, in one of the previous episodes um, on your show. And another thing that they had in common was the fact that beginning around the middle of the fourth century BC, uh, many of them, uh, many of these communities apparently joined forces against the Roman Republic. Uh, and this union is referred to as the Samnite League in the, um, the ancient Greek and Roman historical accounts that I just mentioned. So because of that, uh, the term Samnite might be used um, as a general way of referring to those communities in, in the context of the last four to, to five centuries BC. Okay. And you touched on it, but just to clarify, what is what is known about the term Samnite? So if it, if it came from a Greek writer, and can you clarify who that Greek writer was? Um, what 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 what's known about the, the the term Samnite? Why would they have used that that term? Right. Well, um, the earliest reference that we have to um, to the word Samnitai in Greek is um, is in the um, it comes from the fourth century um, from the work of a an author called Philistus. Now, this Philistus was a was a chronicler who was at the service of Dionysius I, the, the, the tyrant of, of the city of Syracuse in Sicily. And Philistus apparently referred to a people who he called the Samnitae. Um, and uh, uh, he, he seems to have located these people sort of in, in the area, like the, the central area of, um, of, the, um, of the, the Italian mountains. So, um, so that's the earliest reference that we have. And then this, this word, Samnitai, reappears in later Greek sources. And, and by the time we start having Latin written accounts around the, uh, well, the earliest of which um, date from the late third, second centuries BC, um, that, that's when we start to see Samnitas in, in Latin. Uh, so there, we don't really know where these names came from, right? There are many theories as to the etymology. Some people think that Samnitai in Greek might be a reference to the word Samnion, which means um, spearhead in, uh, in Greek. That's just one possible explanation. Now, nobody, uh, not, not everybody agrees um, that that's the, the correct origin. Um, so we don't really know, right? But, but um, there's this other theory that um, holds that both the Greek Samnitai, the word Greek, the word Samnitai in Greek, and um, the word Samnitas in Latin, both of these may have derived from a term um, that was present in the Oscan language and, and other um, Italic languages, um, which would have been the name that these communities, these central Apennine communities, would have used to refer to themselves. And that word is Safin, 
S-A-F-I-N, at least that's the, that's the root word. Uh, so so there, there are a few scholars who believe that it was this Oscan or Italic word, Safin, this name, uh, Safinim, uh, would be one possible reconstruction. Um, it was that, they believe that it was that Oscan word that originated the, the Greek Saunitai and the Latin Saunitas. Um, but uh, but that's, that's just a hypothesis. Okay. So today we're chatting more about and exploring what scholars know about the Samnites in the 5th century BCE, so the 400s. And uh, in the last episode, we spent a fair bit of time on discussing what scholars know about funerary evidence to understand better about how these people lived in, during the Iron Age. In that conversation, as I mentioned in the intro, that was focused more on the 9th to 6th century centuries. So can you create a panoramic? We're, in, we're, we're, we're talking more about the 400s today. Can you create a panoramic, however sm small or large, for this century in terms of what uh, what should be flagged? Is there is there events that scholars know of from a domestic affairs perspective, a foreign affairs? Is there is, is funerary evidence coming into the conversation, trade, writings, religion? What are what are the main things from a panoramic perspective, Raphael, that, that you think uh, should be flagged? Well, I think it's really interesting to, um, to do, as you suggest, and adopt a more global view to begin with. So when we think about the fifth century, um, when we get to around 450 BC, for example, we start to see all kinds of social, economic, and, um, and also political changes happening throughout the Mediterranean, right? Uh, think of Athenian democracy, for example, or the formation of the Roman Republic. And um, the, uh, the so-called Samnites were not, uh, were in no way immune to these waves of change. So yes, there are, are issues pertaining to, as you say, domestic affairs and also foreign affairs. I might start talking about the foreign affairs because they're really interesting, particularly from my point of view. Uh, because as I may have mentioned in previous episodes, the fifth century BC is um, the earliest historical context in relation to which we start hearing about the Samnites in our Greek and Roman sources. And I'm referring here to the um, ancient Greek and Roman accounts about how um, around 425 BC and the 420s BC, uh, the Samnites presumably started coming down from the mountains and um, entering and possibly conquering the Greek and Etruscan cities of Campania, which was the neighboring region. Um, and also it was one of the, one of the richest areas of uh, Italy at the time. Uh, we have, for example, references stating that the city of Capua, which was um, supposedly an Etruscan city at the time, uh, we have references to Capua being conquered by the Samnites uh, in around 423, uh, and also references to the Greek city of Cumae um, being conquered shortly afterwards. And according to, to Strabo, for example, which um, I think I, I is an author, an author that I mentioned, who's an author that I mentioned in previous episodes. Uh, Strabo says that Pompeii was also conquered by the Samnites at around that time. And so um, as to the actual accounts that we have, um, the, the, the most detailed is, um, is Livy's account uh, that was written in the late first century BC. 
of how the Samnites supposedly conquered the city of Capua. Um, and I think it's worth it to, um, um, it's worth focusing on this a little bit. Um, Liddy mentions the, um, the episode in his fourth book where he talks about events of the fifth century in general. Uh, so basically, according to Livy, what happened was uh, that a group of Samnites arrived at Capua, uh, and they were welcomed into the city by the Etruscans who lived there. And they're even said to have received a share of the city's lands, which is significant. Um, and these lands, like the lands around Capua, were presumably very much sought after because, like I said, Campania was and still is uh, one of the most fertile areas of Italy and possibly of the, the whole Mediterranean. Um, uh, Livy uh, refers in passing to uh, the fact that the Etruscans at the time were, um, quote, worn out with fighting, right? And so this is ambiguous. We don't know if he means that there, there were previous conflict between the Samnites and the Etruscans, and then they settled it by sorting, the, you know, coming up with this, this sharing arrangement. We don't know. Um, he doesn't give us any context for these, uh, you know, this, this previous fighting that he refers to. So it's, um, it's a little difficult to try and reconstruct what what might have led to, you know, to the uh, to the Etruscans accepting the Samnites into the city. In any case, um, Livy then goes on to say that the Samnites killed uh, the Etruscans, turned on the Etruscans after a day of feasting. So when the Etruscans were least suspecting. Um, and, and they immediately, the Samnites, according to Livy, immediately took control of the city, right? Now, it's important to note that um, this kind of story is really similar. The story that Livy tells about the Samnites in Capua is very similar to other accounts that we have in ancient historical writing about outsiders who um, are initially welcomed as guests into a city, but who then turn on their hosts right, uh, that is the, the previous occupants, and take over. Uh, it's more or less the same story that, um, that's also told about a group of mercenary soldiers who are known as the Mamertines, um, who in the early third century BC supposedly took over the city of Messana or Messina in southern Italy. Uh, so we don't, we don't necessarily need to think that these um, occasions uh, were occasions where um, entire populations were massacred or, or replaced. You know, um, we, we, we need to make allowances for for some level of bias um, that's present in our our Greek and especially in our Roman sources uh, whenever they talk about the Samnites. So so it's possible that Livy might be rendering the episode, you know, in, in a in a sort of um, in a negative. Uh, way uh, so as to portray the Samnites in a in a negative way because this is something that does turn up in his um, in his text. Um, but if, but if, uh, can I just say a little bit more about um, about this episode and what it might mean in terms of his our historical interpretation? Yes, please. There are many different ways. Yeah, there are many different ways that we can interpret uh, this information like that Livy conveys. But one thing we can do is uh, put his narrative. Um, in perspective with other types of historical source, uh, for example, the inscriptions or um, epigraphic sources, um, which were produced at the time, in, in the, actually in the fifth century in Campania. And what's interesting is that it's also 
in the, the 5th century, especially towards the end of the 5th century, that we start to see more and more inscriptions uh, turning up in Campania, which are written in the Oscan language. Okay, so um, it's, um, although it's really important to note that um, the earliest Oscan inscriptions in Campania that we know about uh, actually start to appear earlier in the 5th century, so before the, uh, the Samnite conquest supposedly happened. Uh, now, we might conclude that these Oscan inscriptions somehow reflect the growing presence of, uh, of Oscan speakers in Campanian cities uh, in the course of the 5th century. So, and that might suggest uh, that maybe what happened wasn't so much a sudden invasion of Oscan speakers, let's call them Samnites, right? Uh, a sudden invasion of Samnites from the Apennine Mountains but instead um, a more gradual process uh, through which, you know, this Oscan presence became more and more significant. Um, and and, and if, if this is an, actu uh, an accurate reconstruction of what happened, uh, then, uh, you know, the resulting picture is really interesting for several reasons. Like, I, I'm here thinking about what you said, the expression that you used, um, Andrew, um, the foreign affairs. Right, so there's a lot, a lot of stuff that's happening in terms of foreign relations, like we might call them international relations, in late fifth century Italy, which which are worth mentioning, and they involve the Samnites. Uh, for one thing, um, it uh, this this you know the, these um, this evidence that we have of a growing Oscan presence or Samnite presence in Campania. It matches up with um, similar accounts that we find in ancient historical writing about other groups um, from the central and southern Italian mountains, uh, such as the so-called Lucanians, who, who, like the Samnites, supposedly invaded um, neighboring coastal plains um, in the late 5th century. Uh, in the case of the Lucanians, we have accounts about how they took over the Greek city of Poseidonia. Which is um, which is just you know further south as you as you go along the Tyrrhenian coast of Italy, and of course Poseidonia was later conquered by the Romans, uh, um, who renamed it Paestum, and that's um, uh, to this day you can you can see you can find some of the best preserved examples of Greek temple architecture in Poseidonia Paestum. So so uh, when you look at things from a broader perspective, as I'm trying to you know, to do. What we seem to get is an overall picture where, you know, Oscan speakers from the Central Apennines start to spread their influence into um, a lot, you know, most of southern Italy, um, including these really very wealthy areas like Campania and uh, Magna Grecia that had previously been dominated by Etruscans and Greeks. So we're still not entirely sure about what all of this means in terms of historical in historical processes. Uh, but for one thing, and this is just to conclude, um, it might give us uh, a very important context for the start of the Roman expansion itself, uh, which apparently began at around the same time, or started to begin at around the same time, uh, shortly afterwards, maybe. Uh, for example, when we have the, 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 uh, the Roman conquest of Veii in 396, so, so it would seem that there might have been competing expansionist trends 
happening at the same time in central and southern Italy at that point, uh, which would mean that the Romans were not alone. Relevant to what you shared there, Raphael, and I'm going to flag a couple episodes for everyone listening. Dr. Gary Forsyth of Texas Tech University was on the show recently. He's been on the show several times, but recently we did a couple episodes. One episode was on and exploring what scholars know about the Roman Republic in the early 5th century. And, and then this, the other episode that was published recently, and to flag what I mean by recently, I don't have the date right in front of me, but Dr. Skopakas and I are doing this recording on August 31, 2021, so, so the date's flagged for everybody. Um, a couple weeks ago or so, an, another episode was published with Dr. Gary Forsyth on exploring what scholars know about the Roman Republic in the late 5th century. So relevant to some of the items that Dr. Scopacasa was sharing there in that response. The, inscri the inscriptions that you shared there, Raphael, were, were those the Oscan inscriptions? Were those found in Campania in this period of time? Yeah, they were. They were found in Campania, including places such as Capua. So, um, and it's, it's interesting because until the early 5th century, basically um, what you get in Campania and, and in the, the urban centers of Campania are inscriptions that are written in Etruscan and Greek. And this seems to cohere with what we know about, you know, the cultural makeup of the region until, until the, the, the 5th century, it was mostly um, um, composed of, you know, it, it, it housed um, settlements that were inhabited by Etruscans and, and Greeks, uh, according to, to what we know from the historical uh, historical sources. So, um, so yeah, so that and, and it's um, it's starting in the early fifth century, we start to see Oscan language inscriptions, and they seem to become more and more prevalent in the um, in the epigraphic record as we move further into the fifth century. How do you reconcile this? And, th and maybe this is the one of the toughest questions of all, um, especially based on some of what you shared. There's certain items that uh, evidence is going to be more scant when we're going back this far. But how do you um, and then also assessing the what evidence is there, as you've as you've pointed out, how do you reconcile th this this item? Do you believe that there's um, there's a there's a strong case to be made that there was an assimilation? There was some some form of co co coalescing amongst the, the the Greeks, the Etruscans, the the Samnites in Campania. Do you think there's a do you think there's a strong case for that? Do you think that that could have occurred? Then there there was there was conflict, or do you think there's there's um, a, 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 or do you think the case is strongest where it it was it was only con conflict? It seems to be maybe there's another case that 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 I'm not I'm not seeing, but it seems like those are the three uh, big big potential scenarios here. Yeah, yeah, I would agree that those are um, basically you know what we the hypothetical. Um, scenarios, as you say, that we can come up with. Um, I would say that there's 
a good case that can be made for cultural coexistence. Because you see, um, uh, the fact that the Etruscan and Greek language inscriptions don't simply disappear uh, would seem to indicate that some degree of coexistence um, and coalescence, as you say, was uh, going on, right? So I would favor that hypothesis, which is not to say that certain episodes of violence or conflict never occurred. Um, I think it's you know a case that can be made if, if we if we take Livy's narrative seriously, um, as you know as, as far as it's reasonable to do so. Um, it would be plausible to suggest that there were certain occasions where um, certain interest groups clashed, um, and this would have involved possibly access to land, because like I said, Campanian land was highly sought after. Uh, so we mustn't rule out the possibility that there were more violent, you know, violent episodes that involved, for example, the, um, you know, a, a replacement of, of ruling elites in, in particular communities. Um, so certain elites would have been su superseded by others, and that would have involved some degree of conflict. But we mustn't, I think, exaggerate uh, the conflict and, and the violence element, because, also because it, from an archaeological perspective, we don't really have much in the way of, um, you know, wholesale destruction. Of, um, of centers or cities. Um, we do have evidence that um, certain cultural practices, in addition to the, uh, to the inscriptions, began to change and, and, and did change um, during the fifth century. For example, the funerary evidence. We, we, we have some evidence for, for change in the funerary sphere um, in Campania. Uh, for example, the appearance of um, um, burials that contain fewer grave goods, tombs that contain fewer grave goods, and apparently, in some cases, um, a larger number, a greater number of burials containing weapons and also specific kinds of weapons and specific kinds of armor, which are which were also found in the um, in the central Apennine Mountains. So some people think that this is evidence that you know Samites were coming in, taking over, and you know, sort of um, forcing their own their own culture and their own customs onto you know the the, uh, uh, the local populations. Um, I don't I, I don't I, I think um, you know it's it's um, it's tempting to um, to get carried away. So I think I would I would tend to think that these changes were more complex and that they involved um, different kinds of, uh, of cultural um, interchange between Campania and. And the Apennines, and I don't, I don't see the appearance of, um, you know, um, um, so-called Samnite armor, such as certain types, certain types of breastplate. Um, I don't see that as evidence of, of violent conquest necessarily. Um, but you can look at the evidence in different ways, as you say. The um, the events in. Capua, so that it gets into this episode, can you cover what's known or inferred about how those events completed uh, by the end of the 5th century? Well, so by the end of the 5th century, we uh, and into the 4th, we seem to have um, substantial um, transformations um, uh, 
is becoming more consolidated. So, for example, uh, when you get to the fourth century, there seems to be a particular kind of administrative political structure in place in Capua, which involved certain types of magistracies um, that have Oscan names. So it would seem that by the end of the entire process, the, the Oscan element seems to have prevailed, at least in the political and administrative sphere, right? Because you get references to a certain type of magistracy that's known as the Medis Tuptics. I think I might have mentioned this in my first talk about the Samnites on your show. So it's, um, it's, it was a magistracy, it's a, uh, an, an Oscan magistracy. It had an Oscan name, Medis Tuptics, and it, it would translate roughly as, as something like um, the, the chief magistrate, right? Um, it was, it, was um, um, it seems to have been one of the highest um, offices, political offices. In Capua, for example, so fourth century Capua is a place that, that has, it is a community that has um, Oscan um, language, Oscan institutions, Oscan magistracies, such as the Medis Tuptics. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's a name, it's, it's, a, it's a magistracy that's also attested in other parts of central and southern Italy where Austin was spoken and where the Samnites were present, including, you know, the Samnite heartland itself. We hear about um, the Medis Tuptics in, you know, in Samnium proper, so to speak, uh, in the central Apennine, uh, central Apennine mountains. Um, so it's, um, so that might be evidence that, that you know, that the Austin element may have prevailed, um, at least in a, in a political institutional uh, administrative sphere, which is not to say that, you know, Greek and Etruscan elements were not accommodated into this, uh, to this new, like, Austin uh, administrative structure. I think that would be, you know, if, if you, I would say that that's, that's the most likely scenario, that these, um, the, the, uh, the Etruscan and Greek elements weren't simply wiped out, they, 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 they sort of, they were accommodated out. That's, that's how I, I think, you know, we, we might view the situation. And I want to get it, this in, in the episode as well, as I'm thinking about it uh, more and to flag it for the sake of being fastidious and, and also so that uh, if someone is searching um, uh, one of the episodes I mentioned earlier, they can, they can actually find it. Um, I may have said when I was referencing the previous uh, two episodes with Dr. Gary Forsythe, I might have mentioned the early and late 5th century. It's one of those things that I'll know when I actually listen back, but I'm going to get it in the episode right now. Um, just, just to make sure it's clear, those couple episodes were the early 4th century BCE and the late 4th century BCE. There's also an episode on the entire 5th century, uh, exploring what scholars know about the Roman Republic in the 5th century. That also was with Dr. Gary Forsyth of Texas Tech University. Um, okay, so do you, in the 5th century... Raphael, does does any of these communities, these Samnite communities, do do they uh, ally with Rome, and uh, and does that happen? So so does do, does that happen at, at all? Do you consider that to happen at all? Let let's let's call it in the his, history that's known of the of the Samnites, and does that and do you believe that that occurs 
And if so, do you believe that occurs in the fifth century? Well, that's an interesting question, Andrew. Um, we have very little evidence to, uh, to support the hypothesis that there were um, formal arrangements of alliance between Rome, the Roman Republic, and the Samnite communities in the fifth century. We do have some scattered references in Libby, once again, um, that might you know, be relevant to your question. For example, um, on, on two occasions, I think Libby refers to um, an episode of, um, of distress in Rome. I think famine, he mentions a famine towards the end of the fifth century, which affected the Roman population. And then he says that because of this famine, Rome sent envoys to neighboring communities to ask for help. And one of the communities where the envoys that the envoys went to, according to Livy, was Capua, right? Uh, and by the time, by that time, the Capua had already, according to Livy, had already been taken over by the Samnites, and it was all it was already a Samnite uh, city, according to him. So the Samnites, according to Livy, were already in charge of Capua by the time the Roman envoys arrived asking for help. Um, due to the famine. And, 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 and Livy says that the, the Samnites who held Capua refused to provide assistance. Um, so it's again, it's, it's the, one of those historical notices that's difficult for us to, to try and interpret because for one thing, we're not, we're not really sure how reliable the information is. Assuming there's a basis of truth to Livy's, Livy's notice, we could hypothesize that there was at least the possibility uh, for Rome to try and establish um, relations of, of mutual support or alliance um, with Samnite communities such as Capua. So, so we might we might conclude that there, the possibility existed um, because you know it would seem that Rome might have made efforts in that direction. So in this century, Raphael, what's known, if anything, about what their, these different communities, what their religious worship would have been, whether it be the same or diverse? Is anything known about that in this century? Well, yes, um, there is some um, information that's known. Uh, if we look at the central Apennine area specifically, so shifting the focus away from campaign here for a bit, um, and onto the area where the the Samnite, the so-called Samnite communities, um, came from or were based, um, we start to see some growing signs of activity uh, around the the, the fifth, in the middle of the fifth century. Um, we start to see some signs of activity in those places where major Samnite sanctuaries would go on to develop um, and and also become monumentalized. In, in the subsequent centuries. So these early signs of activity that I'm referring to uh, consist basically of um, what archaeologists call votive deposits, which are basically sets of objects that seem to have been ritually deposited, or in some cases possibly discarded, um, uh, and which possibly has some form of religious significance. Uh, for example, as um, as offerings to gods and goddesses or other kinds of deities. So, and some of these objects had previously been placed in um, inside uh, tombs, 
during the Iron Age um, as, uh, as grave goods. And this is important for us to note because it indicates that um, there was apparently a change going on in the fifth century uh, in the way that people, uh, these, these so-called Samnite communities, were using and disposing of wealth. Uh, and the objects that I'm talking about here include things like pottery vessels, but also metal items such as safety pins, um, jewelry, um, and also weapons, uh, and also pieces of armor, bronze pieces of armor in some cases. Uh, so these are all items that previously have been placed in inside tombs as grave goods, like I mentioned in the previous episodes. But we also start to get some different kinds of objects turning up in these early votive deposits of the uh, 5th century. For example, um, little figurines, little bronze anthropomorphic figurines that we don't know, it, well, they, they might represent um, deities like gods and goddesses, but also um, in some cases they might depict human worshippers because of the uh, the stance, you know, the position that these uh, these human human figures are are um, are shown in. Um, so, and also we have clay, like later, uh, um, and this is not I mean, this is a, a later development. It's not a fifth fifth century thing, but we also start to get clay figurines in the shape of human body parts and, and organs, the, the so-called anatomical votives. But these only start to turn up um, in the um, from the late from the fourth century onwards. So they're a later development. Now, one thing that's um, that this votive material shows us, I think, is that already in the fifth century, people in Samium seem to have worshipped what we might call a truly Mediterranean pantheon, right? Uh, in other words, the gods and goddesses uh, of the Samnites at that time don't seem to have been very different, or may not have been that different from uh, those of other Italic peoples, or even those of the Greeks and Romans. And so, it's, for example, one of the most conspicuous pieces of evidence that we have in this sense, and which does, which, which apparently does date from the fifth century, is um, a clay sculpture of, of what is apparently the goddess Athena, uh, which was recovered at a place called Rocas Promonte, which is in the smack in the middle of, um, of the Samnite mountains. So this is a life-sized statue uh, that's um, it's currently housed in the um, the Archaeological Museum in Vienna. Uh, and it's a life-size clay statue that's been dated to the 5th century on stylistic grounds. Um, and, um, and it shows uh, what is apparently the goddess you know, the, uh, um, Athena uh, in, in combat position, at least it's interpreted as you know, a possible depiction of, of Athena or a deity like Athena. Um, she's uh, she's in combat position. She's wearing her typical goat skin, right? Um, so uh, of course, it's um, this kind of material makes it difficult for us to try and identify any type of religious distinctiveness or any type of distinctive religious cult that was, shall we say, typically Samnite. Um, 
it's worth mentioning that besides this the so-called Rakas Pramante Athena, we also have images, sculptures of Hermes and Jupiter, although these are um, slightly later. But by far the most um, popular um, cult object, like cult recipient, uh, was Hercules. And we have a really large number of bronze figurines that portray Hercules, mostly as a young man with, uh, you know, with the lion skin and the club. It's difficult to date these figurines because uh, the dating is mostly based on, on stylistic criteria, which can be a bit elusive at times. You know, unfortunately, we don't really have much in the way of archaeological um, contextual information that would allow us to date these these figurines more precisely, but it's it's conceivable that some of them might date from as early as the fifth century, which is what we're talking about, uh, the period that we're talking about. Um, and uh, like I said, many of these figurines they um, they seem to depict Hercules or Heracles uh, wearing the the, the the lion skin and the club, uh, mostly as a young man, but but in several different guises. And, uh, and many people think that uh, the reason why Hercules was so popular uh, among the Samnites, possibly as early as the fifth century BC, uh, was because the Samnites were supposedly really big on herding. And I think I might have mentioned this briefly in, in one of the previous episodes. There's this idea that herding was really important for the Samnite economy, pastoralism. And indeed, I think it was important, but maybe not as important as people think it was. Um, and Hercules, as you know, is um, is associated, strongly associated with herding. Uh, for example, in the myth about her, how he herded uh, the cattle of Garion. So, um, like I said, I personally, I think that uh, the Samnite, uh, shall we say, love for her Hercules is... Um, is a sign of another sign of just how much they were in tune with what their neighbors were doing uh, in, in religious terms, you know, both in Italy and, and elsewhere in the Mediterranean. Uh, how much in tune they were with what was going on in the world around them, right? They weren't isolated. And we know, for example, that um, and this is this is something that might have turned up in, in you know your your episodes about the Roman Republic, the early Roman Republic. Uh, we know that Hercules was uh, really big in early Rome, a really, a really important uh, um, object of cult, uh, focus of cult in early Rome from a very early day. So in the end, uh, religion and worship are really, I, I just think they're really amazing areas of study because they show us that despite um, you know, all their political, social, economic differences, uh, the peoples of ancient Italy were, in a sense, part of the same big community, um, a, a big cultural community, if you like. How many settlement sites have been discovered that are tied to these various communities? And is it known how many various sites may have existed in this century that we're speaking about? Well, um, we have survey, archaeological survey evidence um, that 
would indicate that um, there was there were quite a few small rural settlements um, scattered you know throughout the countryside a few more nucleated centers I would say about I mean uh, maybe 10 or 12 that are um, known that, that have been some some of which have actually been detected um, uh, because of these archaeological surveys um, and um, I would say you know a few dozen um, small rural sites okay so we've covered a bunch of different things today in this chat Raphael we've we've touched on things such as their, their, their writings, identity, early sources, uh, domestic, depending on how you define that, domestic affairs, foreign affairs, funerary evidence. Is there, so working way to wrapping up the, the episode soon, is there anything else that pertains to the 5th century that you want to make sure uh, gets across for, for, for listeners? Anything that we haven't covered that you want to make sure gets in the episode or something that you want to emphasize before we wrap up? No, I think we've pretty much covered all the, all the main points as I, as I see them. Um, I would want to maybe emphasize um, by saying, like restating what I said at the beginning, that uh, if we take a step back and look at the fifth century in the Mediterranean in general, what we see is um, a great deal of accelerated social change, right? Uh, and these changes involve the development of um, new types of political regimes in places like Athens and Rome. As regards Italy in particular, uh, I think it's worth emphasizing that we have um, indications of new and possibly more intense kinds of human mobility going on. Uh, and this mobility seems to be uh, directly, seems to have involved um, the, um, the Oscan-speaking communities of central Italy, including the so-called Samnites. But like I mentioned previously, um, it's in the context of the 5th century that the Samnites start to be named as such in our surviving historical sources. Um, that is, as a group uh, of people who make an appearance, as it were, in the, the geopolitical stage. Now, uh, I'm speaking here of those, uh, those narratives that I um, mentioned uh, that talk about a growing Samnite presence in major cities on the Tyrrhenian seaboard of Italy, uh, such as Capua and Cumae. Uh, we, don't, we don't need to assume that these were all, you know, these encounters were all about violent conquest, as, uh, as there's some evidence that um, uh, in favor of more complex scenarios um, that involve cultural and social interchanges and coalescence. Um, and it's also in the context of the 5th century, that the late 5th century in particular, that what we have what appear to be the first references to formal contact between uh, the Samnites and the Roman Republic. And this is uh, in view of those um, rather brief, but still potentially significant notices in Livy um, about Roman envoys being sent to the Samnites who were in Capua to ask for their help with um, 
uh, with a crisis situation in Rome that apparently involved some sort of famine. Uh, of course, we're not really sure how far this uh, information is reliable, but if we accept it in, you know, in its broadest outlines, um, it might provide some sort of context for what we know about the subsequent exchanges uh, between Rome and the Samnites and uh, the Campanian communities in the fourth century BC, but that's uh, another story, of course. Great chatting with you again, Raphael. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me again, Andrew. Always a pleasure. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Scopa Casa wrote, he's author of Ancient Samnium, Settlement Culture and Identity Between History and Archaeology. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Raphael and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.